Lord, as your son bids us to go, to show ourselves to the priest, so we go to him again, who is the true temple, the place where we find our God. And as we show the works of God in our lives to those around us, we point them also to the place where God comes to meet us, even in our Savior Jesus Christ. In his death and his resurrection, we are saved. So let us return with thanks. Let us return to our Savior with joy. For he has saved us. So now as you read these words of John in chapter 5, may our hearts be turned again to our Savior Jesus to rejoice in his love. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So... Um, yeah. Any questions from last week or any other week of your life that you've been dying to ask? Now's your shot. Because then when Christ comes back, you won't get a chance to ask anymore. Anything? Any questions? Last week, we spent a lot of time um, discussing the Sabbath. And, and Jesus as Lord of Sabbath, and what does it mean that he is the one who is allowed to do Sabbath work uh, because his Father is doing Sabbath work. And remember last week we ended with this verse 18. The Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Um, it's really funny. That's not how it says in Greek. But that's okay. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Now, we ended with this idea that the, the charge against Jesus in the Gospel of John is that he is claiming to be God. And the author of the Gospel wants you to see that Jesus is guilty of that charge. Right? Is, is Jesus guilty of what the Jews say he's doing? Yes. Yes. He is walking around saying things that only God has the right to say. He is walking around talking about his father as though they're somehow in this together. He is walking around doing things that only God has the right to do. Right? He is doing that. Right? Okay. Now, John says, but all these things I wrote down that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing that about Him, you get life in His name, salvation. Okay? So, it's not that the Gospels are written to say, no, 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 the Jews are wrong to charge Jesus about this. The Gospels are written to say what they were perceiving He was saying and doing is exactly what He was saying and doing. And he is the one who has the right to do and say these things because he is who he claims to be. Right? Now, this is important because a lot of people say the Gospels don't present Jesus that way. They'll say, oh, the Gospels just make Jesus some good teacher that was walking around saying, love each other, be kind. Well, if Jesus was a dude walking around saying, let's love each other, be kind, would somebody have killed him? They would have been like, no, okay. Who cares? 
The, the reason Jesus was crucified was because he was saying way more than that. Listen, listen to the reading for today from, from, John, from Luke chapter 17. So there's, there's these lepers that come to Jesus. Right? And, and what do lepers need? Healing. Healing, because they're lepers. Right? What does a dead man need in Luke chapter 5? Life, because he's the dead man. Okay? So it's easy. Jesus isn't like, hmm, what do you guys need? Oh, he knows. So what does he say? Go show yourself to the priest. Because the priests are the ones that are allowed to say, you don't have leprosy anymore. So they leave Jesus and they go toward the priests. But as they go, they are healed. And so the one returns to Jesus to give thanks. And Jesus says, by returning to me, you're giving thanks to God. Where did you used to go to give thanks to God? The temple. Now where do you go to give thanks to God? Jesus. He's the temple. Who do you think you are? See? Who does this guy think he is? What, you're overthrowing the temple? You're greater than the temple? Yep. That's exactly who I am. You're the one that can cleanse leprosy and you're the one that can pronounce somebody whole and saved just by your speaking? That's exactly who I think I am. Right? And that's exactly what I'm going to do. See, this is the way the Gospels are written. It's not that the church took the Gospels and, let, and made Jesus into a God figure and decided to worship him. No, the Gospels present Jesus as the one who says and does the things that only God can do. Okay? And that's the discussion of John chapter 5. How dare you do these things? How dare you say these things? Who do you think you are? And Jesus' answer is clear. I'm the Father's Son. That's who I think I am. And that's who the Father thinks I am. Right? Does that make sense? So that's the discussion we're in in John chapter 5, is this discussion of, if you're breaking Sabbath, God gave us Sabbath. Who do you think you are? And he says, it's my father's Sabbath, therefore it's my Sabbath. We can do with it as we please. Does that make sense? Okay, any questions or thoughts on that? All right, let's read John chapter 5, verses 19 through 24. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. 
Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Thank you very much. Usually I'm better timed at my bites of donut and the finish of the reading. I'm sorry, that was a little, little off. It happens. All right, number one. How is Jesus willingly submissive to the Father? He doesn't do anything of his own Right. But he only does what he sees the Father doing. Okay? In the state of humiliation, does Jesus have a divine nature? Does Jesus have a divine nature in the state of humiliation? Yes. yes. What does he do with it? Nothing. Not nothing. No. He does use it sometimes. <laughs> right. He voluntarily, right? This is what I keep telling you guys. Voluntarily refrains. There's an F in there somewhere. From from the full use of his divine nature. Does Jesus have a divine will? This is the monothalite controversy, just in case you were categorizing in your head. Okay? Does Jesus have a divine will? Yes. Does he exercise it to his own accord? No. He always voluntarily refrains from the full use of his divine nature. So when it comes to the will, what does he do with his will? He submits it to his father's will. This is his voluntary desire. He does this because he wants to. He submits to the father. Okay, so he submits to the Father. Right? You guys know this inherently. You've taught your children this. For in the garden, he prays, I really don't want to have to suffer for the sins of the whole world. If there's any other way, but not my will be done, but yours be done. See, you literally have Jesus saying this. He has the right to have his own will. He does have his own will. He is equal to the Father touching the Godhead. Right? They're both true God. One substance, three persons. Don't divide the substance. Don't confuse the persons. Right? So, this is a place where Jesus shows us that he is submitting his will to the Father. Does that mean he doesn't have a will? No. Why, are we, why am I saying this three times in a row? Well, yeah, because it's Trinitarian. <laughs> I'm almost trying to drill into your heads because here's the issue. You all are offended at the idea that you don't get to do what you want to do. You think, when I say you, I mean me, that it's somehow making us less human if we don't have the right to exercise our own will. 
But what we see in our Savior Jesus Christ is having your own will is actually fully and completely realized when you fully and completely submit your will to whose? The Father's. Your will is given to you that you might submit fully to God's will. We fight that all the time when you look at Ephesians 5 and women not wanting to Oh boy, don't you dare read that at my wedding. <laughs> Ephesians 5.22 But it's good practice. What does it say? Wives submit, to your Wives, submit to your husband as to the Lord. But it's good practice. I, I ain't submitting to no one. Well, your marriage is going to go well. It's an effort and a struggle. It's, that's exactly right. It's an effort and a struggle. Why? Because we don't want to. Why? Because it's of sinful. It's human nature. I mean, it's, it's the fall. It's ego. It's anxiety. Right? Concupiscence <laughs> is our inherited our inherited assumption that my will is king. And if you're going to define me as a complete human being, I must be able to freely execute my own will. And if someone says otherwise, they are treading on my freedom. And as Americans, we know that the next to godliness is liberty. My freedom to do what I want. Don't you come in with this submission talk. I've got to affirm my individuality and my personhood. Here's the thing. That has no room in Christianity. Zero. That kind of talk does not belong in the church. Our fervent desire is to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified and to learn to live our lives in full submission to the Father. Right? For the entire law can be summed up in these two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And to love your neighbor. Right? No room for me. None. Original sin says, most important thing is me. Right? And God, God works as long as he does what I need him to do. And he works for me. That's great. And, and you'll find plenty of preachers and teachers who will, who will teach you that. That God is your puppet. And that he will always be there when you need him. And that he will do the good thing for you if you pray the right prayer or do the right things. And he will confirm that you are awesome. There are plenty of preachers you can go to listen to that will tell you that. Plenty. <laughs> But a true preacher will point you to Christ. And what we see when you get to Christ is, is the Son of God in flesh. Even He says, not my will. No, 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 not my will. The Father's will. And that results in a cross. But here's the thing. Don't forget this. What does the cross result in? The resurrection. Freedom. At the cross, your enemies are defeated. Sin, death, devil, defeated. 
forever. Given to you freely. That's the Father's will. Karen? I was just thinking as you were saying that, our country, we always say, is founded on godly principles. <laughs> but, you know, so liberty was should, should not have been in there. They weren't Lutherans. No. They were not Lutherans. Right. It was found, it is founded on our country was founded on the principles of a natural law. Which means that the scriptures teach that all men are born with the knowledge that it's wrong to kill. <coughs> right? That there is a God somewhere. And so the natural law is that every human knows that it's, it's just inherently wrong to break into someone's house and steal their iPhone. It's just wrong. I don't care what you think or what you say. You can excuse it. But you know it's wrong. And your conscience can get sheared to the point where you or seared to the point where you actually convince yourself it's okay. But you know it's wrong. That's the, the principles that our country is founded upon is this idea of natural <coughs> law. And the, the instantiation of natural law that our country is founded on is actually a result of the Enlightenment. In which they believed that the natural law meant that individual people is where this natural law actually lives it out, lives itself out in society, not in the government. Okay, and the government is only there to encourage individuals to live according to natural law. That's the founding principles of our constitution. Whether you guys like it or not, that's what it is. I mean, I'm not making stuff up, you can look this up. This is how it works. Is natural law the same as the, when they say Judeo-Christian values? That's a, what most people mean, yeah. Most people mean Judeo-Christian values mean the natural law as reflected in the Ten Commandments. But remember, when they say Ten Commandments, they do not mean Ten Commandments. They mean the Seven Commandments. Because nobody in this country wants everybody to have the same God. What's the First Commandment? You should have another gods. Nobody means that. They don't mean that. When you put the Ten Commandments in the courtroom, nobody means that. What about the Sabbath day? Eh, we don't mean that one. What about the Lord's name in vain? We definitely don't mean that one. As a matter of fact, we'll use it just to show how awesome we are. No, we don't mean that. When, even when we talk about the Ten Commandments, what we need, really mean is four through ten. And the problem is 9 and 10 are both pretty much capitalism. So we don't really mean 9 and 10 at all because coveting is a whole reason we exist. My phone was just fine until the new one came out. Now there's three cameras on the back. Boy, I want me that so I can take pictures. Because the camera that was awesome two years ago is now worthless and doesn't look any. I mean, this is just coveting. This is just coveting. Okay? And the Cardinals are coveting runs right now. <laughs> just, just anything. I mean, yeah, let's start with hits. <laughs> okay? So, so this is really the, the problem. This whole system. And I'm, I'm proud to be an American, right? My dad's military for 26 years. I love this country. But I never confuse it with my faith. 
right? We live as faithful citizens of this country, but that's not important than our faith in Christ. Okay? So, what we learn in John 5 is that as concupiscence drives me towards treasuring my own will, Jesus is teaching us to live according to the Father's will, and He is the example of this. One who comes and does only what the Father does. Only. And I know I keep telling you guys this, and you'll believe me eventually. When you do only the Father's will, that is called bliss. Right? When Christ returns and you live forever in bliss, you will do only what God wants you to do. You won't be walking around going, but I want... No, you won't. You'll be doing exactly what God wants, and that will be bliss. So let's try it now. Let's just try it. Let's just try to live, I don't know, like thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's try it. All right, number two. How is Jesus equal to the Father? Yeah, he can raise the dead like the Father can raise the dead. He gets to judge like the Father gives him judgment. He does all this. He does what God does. And this is this is the essence of the New Testament is that Jesus does and says what only Yahweh does and says. Okay? Everybody says, oh, well, in the New Testament, Jesus doesn't walk around saying, I'm God. You're right, he doesn't. But you know what he does? He does says what only Yahweh does. Who's this dude walking on the water? In the Old Testament, who walks on the water? Yahweh. Weird. That's odd, isn't it? I mean, who's this dude walking around raising the dead? Who has the power over death? Only Yahweh. Who's this dude that says, I'll provide bread in the wilderness for my people. I'll feed my people in the wilderness. Who feeds his people in the wilderness? Only Yahweh. See, and this is the issue, is that Jesus does and says the things that only Yahweh does and says. And that's why the Jews keep saying to him, you are blaspheming. You can't do that. You can't say that. And Jesus says, I'm going to keep doing it. Because that's who I am. Right? I am Emmanuel. I am God with us. Okay? Does that make sense? So it's not this claim of Jesus making these grandiose claims of divinity throughout the New Testament. It's actually what he says and does. And everybody watching him is saying that you're acting a lot like Yahweh is supposed to be acting. You guys, are you tired? What's going on this morning? You guys don't really seem to be enthused. What, what can we do? Have we got any jokes? Sing a song? <laughs> the Cardinals will score runs. It's okay. It's okay. Not this year. Next year they'll score runs again. They've reached their quota for the year. It's okay. We got further than the Cubs. 
<laughs> yeah. Or the Brewers, or the, I mean, just list all the teams that aren't playing still. Yeah. All right, number three. We'll just keep going. What does the father give the son? Yes, the ability to judge. Okay, so the father gives to the son judgment. Right? Judgment. Why is this important? Susan? Well, if you reject him, you're rejecting the father. And also, it isn't going to be pretty. It isn't going to be pretty. Why? The Son of Man did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. John 3.17. How's it go after that? What does he talk about after that? Judgment. Let's look. Go back to John 3. It's really funny. For God, so we know John 3.16, right? It's the football verse. It's the field goal verse. And then, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world may be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. So he says, I didn't come to judge the world. And then all he does is talk about judgment. Isn't that strange? But see, this is the reality. And this is, this is actually true for us as Christians as we go forth into this world with the message of Jesus Christ. Is even as you're speaking gospel, guess what you're also doing? Speaking you're speaking law. You're speaking condemnation. You're speaking judgment. Right? Yeah, because, yeah, it's weird because even speaking love, God's love, is bringing with you judgment. Why is that? Because he's holy and we are not. And every sinner who hears the word of God is condemned. Every sinner who hears the word of God is condemned, including you and me. For the word of God will speak truth into our lives and it will expose our sins. And that will condemn us. But there is a word that speaks forgiveness. And that's the word of Jesus, right? So this is, this is actually how we rerun things is the word of God will always bring with a judgment. And so we got to go to the place where that judgment is dealt with. What do you do with your... Okay, so the, the, law, the word exposes you as being a sinner. What do you do with that? You can do one of two things. It's easy. You can either say, well, what right does that word have, that the word of God have to say that I'm a sinner? I'm not a sinner. I'm a pretty good person. I've never killed anyone. 
which is weird. Okay, so that's one take is that I'm not a sinner. The word doesn't have the right to tell me who I am. I self-identify as a holy person. Therefore I am. Right? Why not? That's what we're doing these days. That's one reaction. The other is to say, the word of God is right. What it says about me is true. And if I were to actually examine my life, I would have to agree with this word of God. So then what do I do when the almighty God comes and says that I am judged? You repent, you turn, and you fall upon him for mercy. See, this is, this is the, oh boy, now we're going to get into it, aren't we? You were complaining that we hadn't gone off on tangent. Well, I, mean, I just, I don't want to tangent, it's just a little excitement. <laughs> this is actually one of the ways that Lutheran theologians have, have characterized theology, is that it's God against God. Because God is the one who condemns you. Who is the one who saves you? The same God. As Christ comes to bring salvation, he's also bringing judgment. But as he comes to bring judgment, he brings salvation. Does that make sense? We cannot proclaim a God who only saves and doesn't judge. We also cannot proclaim a God who only judges and never saves. Because the God that we don't get to make up according to our desires, the real true God, is the one who sends his son not to judge, but who ends up judging. The one who sent his son is the one who sent him to save. But in the midst of saving, he also pronounces judgment because here's the thing it's actually gonna happen someday when christ will return and on that day he will be the judge and the king and nobody gets to talk against him no one gets to stand up and say yeah but he's not going to ask anyone's opinion what he says goes because he's king of kings and lord of lords all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. That's what he says. And the fact that the Father has given to him the right to judge means the Father has given Jesus all authority in heaven and on earth. And if you're listening to this as a Jewish person, when Jesus is speaking these words, you know that the one who has the power to judge is God's Messiah. This is the teaching of the Old Testament and the rabbis, is that the one who has the power to judge for God will be the Messiah. And he will come at the end of times as the judge. So Jesus is claiming to be Messiah. Okay? Roger? When was the judgment given to the Son? What's that? When was the judgment given to the Son? Before before creation. Yeah. Um, the other thing I, I ask also in my mind is an advocate to the Father. Mm-hmm. Is that just in the fulfillment of the requirement of the law? or to, uh, Because for, the, for him to be an advocate, that would mean that the Father's judge, right? Nope. 
Uh huh. Um, yes, you're right. But it's God, so of course the answer is yes and not so much. So I, I see what you're getting at, and you're not wrong. You're not wrong in thinking that. Um, the picture is that Jesus is the judge. He's going to enforce the judgment of the Father, and the Father's judgment, he is going to stand as intercessor. I'm not going to write intercessor. I'm going to write advocate. He's going to stand as your advocate before the Father so that the judgment of the Father, which he enforces when he comes as judge, will not be judgment against you, but will be judgment for you. So when he enforces the Father's judgment on the last day, he will judge you, not guilty, but righteous. So between now and then, he's your advocate before the Father. So that when the judgment comes, you receive does that make sense? This is very difficult language. I just think too deep. No, 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 no. You think very well. It's it's just that it's it's all kind of kept in balance. The the secret to theology. I, I'll let you guys know this. The secret to theology is you never resolve the tensions. You're gonna find a passage that says this and a passage that says that, and what do you do with them? You go. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. That says that, and that says that. Okay. You know, I'm going to let it be. I'm just going to let it be. Because, remember, the definitive action of God to save mankind is a tension. It's actually fraught with tension. I was listening to this, this guy last night who was teaching, and he was saying, Now, it's abundantly clear that God can't die, and Jesus dies. Therefore, it's impossible for him to be God. And the other guy was like, well, I'm not totally sure all your premises are correct, but even if they are, I don't think your conclusion is correct. Right? It's just, well, well, how do you say that? You say, that's the mystery of the incarnation. How do you have a guy who is God? Well, is he, does he mess with his humanity so that God can fit in there somewhere? No, he's fully human. Oh, so divinity kind of smushes itself down so it can fit inside of a human. Mm, nope, nope, he's fully God. Well, how can that be? You go, uh, Jesus? I don't know. That's what the scriptures teach us, right? It's simply the way God is presented to us. So what we have in a lot of language of scripture is that now when you think about God, you want to realize that there is God against God. So who is standing before the Father arguing your case? Jesus. Jesus. And if Satan walks up and says, I got an accusation against Roger, who says, get out of here and shut up? Jesus. Jesus. Because he's mine. And what I say about him goes. See, that's the advocate you have with the Father. Does that make sense? And that's the language of 1 Timothy chapter 2. That's where it says it. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. For there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Okay? And then in Romans 8, who is the mediator between God and man? In Romans 8. You guys stink at praying. As a matter of fact, you don't even know what to pray for. Therefore, the, the Spirit intercedes. 
what? I thought Jesus was interceding. Oh, you got the Jesus standing before God the Father. You got the Holy Spirit interceding for you with prayers. You're doing pretty well. Look at your fan club. <laughs> you got the whole Trinity on your side. What should you fear? You want a paraclete? You want someone who stands next to you and does what you can't do? Well, in, the, in John 15 and 16, in 14, 15, and 16, who's the paraclete? Jesus says, I will send another helper, the Holy Spirit. In 1 John, who's the paraclete? Jesus. You're doing pretty well. You've got the Son of God and the Holy Spirit Himself advocating to the Father, who, by the way, loves you enough to send His Son and His Spirit for you. So the entire Trinity is on your side. And here you are worrying about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear. And He goes, what? Hello? You think I'm going to forget you? I'm not going to forget you. When I look at you, I see my child. I see my beloved. This is all for you. Right? That's what Jesus is getting at here. That's who he is when he inherits his stuff from the Father. All right, number four. So how does the Son glorify the Father? By doing the Father's will. By doing the Father's will. Okay? So God, Jesus, is going to glorify his Father by doing the Father's will. What is the Lord's will? That all be saved. That all be saved from knowledge of truth. Good. How does that happen? The cross. Okay. The will of the Father is that the, the Son dies. Matthew chapter 16. You all know this. You guys all know this like the back of your hand. Well, who do they say I am? Well, some people say, that, what about you? Who do you say I am? And what does Peter say? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and, Peter, and Jesus says to Peter, good job, the Father taught you that because you have never gotten anything right otherwise. <laughs> and then Jesus says, and because I'm the Son of the living God, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die. And Peter says, no, you're not. And Jesus says to him, I know you all know it, get behind me, Satan. But, but then he says, because you have in mind the, the things of men, not the things of God. See, in God's mind, this is the goal. This is the salvation of mankind. This is why Jesus came. And John is saying, this is the Father's will. You're going to think it's pretty cool when I walk up to a tomb and call his name and he comes out. You're going to think that's pretty cool. And it is. Admittedly, that's pretty cool. But that's not it. You're going to think it's pretty cool when I turn water into wine. You're going to think it's pretty cool when a, a guy who's in a way you throw into a pool is all of a sudden able to walk just because I tell him to. You're going to think it's pretty cool when a guy's son is healed just because I say he's healed. You're going to think all oh, that's pretty cool. But that's not it. It's when I die on a cross as a propitiation for sins. When the Son of God gives his life as a ransom for many. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth on the cross, I will draw all people to myself. See, so it's all saying, this is the Father's will. Now, because of that, the Father's will is played out in different ways in the ministry of Jesus. 
but it's all getting us to the cross. This is the Father's will. Which means, if that's the Father's will for Jesus, what's the Father's will for you? Same thing. Get you to the cross. Get you here. Because there you have God for you. There you have God who knows you're a sinner. He's not caught off guard by your sin. You're not going to confess the sin that God goes, whoa, you did what? Can't happen. He knows. And what did he decide to do knowing all of your sin? He sent his son so that you can be the righteousness of God. So that every sin you bring before me goes, yeah, I know. Crucified with Christ. And you are forgiven. And you are free. And you are a child. And you have an eternal dwelling with the Father. Why? Because of that. Because of Jesus. Right? And on a good day when you are doing fantastic, this is still true. And on a bad day when you can't seem to get out of bed, still true. And when you're young and healthy and life is good, when you're young, just starting at seminary, you're young, (laughs) when you're young, and then when you get older and things hurt and uh, you can't run as fast and you can't, right? Guess what? It's still true. It's still true. See, and, the, and so the Son does the Father's will so that you can be the children of God. Okay? That's what he's getting at. So number five, can someone believe in God without believing in Jesus? This is really fun. Is that going to lead you anywhere? Okay. What does he say? Verse 23. And 24. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. You can't have faith in God without having faith in Jesus. There is no salvation outside of Jesus. And that's what divides all the religions. Exactly. Exactly. And this is why the gospel must go forth to the ends of the earth. Because there's only one good news of salvation. And it is in Jesus Christ. And I know this is upsetting to a lot of people, including a lot of people in this room who won't admit it. But here's the reality, and I just, I'm just going to say this and let you deal with it. If you want to accept the good parts of the Bible, you have to equally believe the parts that you don't like. You don't get to pick and choose and say, ooh, I like this verse. I don't want to believe that one's true over there. That's not the way it works. So here's kind of opposite to you know, they talk about, you know, he was paralytic and no uh-huh. To me, that's the amazing thing. Yeah. Right. You, yeah. That's how we are. Right. 
See, here's the thing is, Jesus doesn't seem to be concerned about the person that receives his gifts as much as he's concerned about giving the gift. We spend all our time deciding who should be worthy to receive the gift. Jesus is much more concerned about simply giving the gift. Serving somebody. Right? And that's actually how they see this love of God that goes to people who don't deserve it is that you simply live that way. You simply love people who don't deserve your love. Well, they might take advantage of me. Good thing you've never taken advantage of God. Good thing he doesn't live that way. You know what he would do if he said, I'm not going to forgive them because they're just going to sin again. Well, who of us would get to go to the Lord's Supper today if that's the way God operates? If God said you're only worthy to eat and drink the body and blood of Christ if you're actually not going to go ever sin again? I can't go. See, we have a God who gives gifts to people who don't, don't deserve them. He just gives. He walks with this guy who's been an invalid for, forever. And it's like, you want someone to heal you? And, he, and, and the guy literally looks at Jesus and says, I've got no one to help me. And Jesus is kind of going, um, hello, I'm actually here offering to help. And you're telling me you have no one. So what does Jesus do? He says, forget you. He kicks him and he walks away. No, what does he do? He heals him. He heals him and takes the heat for it from all of his buddies in the church. And he says, look, this is the way God does stuff. He gives gifts to people who don't deserve it. Right? So does the grace of God for every person mean that every person is saved? No. No. Isn't that a fun tension? Who did Jesus die for? Everyone, did it work? Yes. Is every single person's sins paid for? Yes. Is every single person's sins forgiven? Yes. Is every single person going to heaven? No. Does that make sense? No. Do we get to change those truths? No. We have to live in them. So you can walk up to every person on the face of the earth and say, your sins have been paid for. God's done it all for you, right? Oh, good, I'm going to heaven. If you believe in the Son. Clearly, from this text, if you believe in the Son, you get the Father's benefits. If you reject the Son, you don't get the Father's benefits. We don't get to make this stuff up, right? Does that make sense? You guys okay with that? Or, I mean, you'll be okay with it. It's not really, it's not up to you, to be totally blunt. It's not up to me. That's just the way it goes. But does that make sense? Where does it say that? Acts 4 12. Acts 4 12. For there is no other name given under heaven by which you must be saved. Okay? And remember, Paul who didn't write Acts, so that's Luke. You can say, well, that's a Lucan thing. What does Paul say? Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And there's no other name to call on. 
And so in Philippians chapter 2, God gives Jesus the name that is above every name. So all this stuff is actually just continuing to work and point toward Christ. It's, the, the Bible is clear. According to the New Testament, the only way to be saved is to believe in Jesus as the Son of God, crucified and risen for the sins of the world. That's it. There are eight multiple paths. Right? One. His name is Jesus. Now here's the good news. He came for everyone. Everyone. So don't we start picking and choosing now. Who do we love? Everyone. Because God loves everyone in Christ. So how do we love them? In Christ. Just like God loves them in Christ. Does that make sense? Susan, did you have a hand up? Well. Or did I blow right past it? How do you get the, them to accept the Bible as the Word of God? I don't care if they accept the Bible as the Word of God. I know. you can. No one is saved by believing the Bible. Nowhere in here does it say if they believe in the Scriptures, they go to heaven. Don't get them to believe in the Bible. Get them to believe in... How do you do that? You don't. The Holy Spirit does yeah. What? <laughs> You're not running the show? How does the Holy Spirit bring faith into someone's heart? Through the words of Scripture. Through the words of Holy Scripture. So you don't get them to believe in Scripture. You simply proclaim Holy Scripture. These are the words of God. Will they do what they promise that God's going to do with them? Yeah, trust that promise. So you still cite the Bible. Don't though. cite it. Just teach it. Okay. Proclaim it. Okay. Tell the truths of the scriptures to the person you're talking to. And it's not us proclaiming it. It's the spirit that lives within us. Good. So when, you, when you're involved in this whole process, you go back and say, I am so awesome because I remember the reference to Acts 4.12 and therefore that person is saved. Isn't God lucky to have you on his team? <laughs> Yeah, how many have you saved in your life? And you go, I'm still working on my kids. <laughs> Pray for them every night. Right? See, here's the thing is, is we this is the good news. Because, you know, it's easy to say, look at me, I did a great job when I remember Acts 4.12. What happens when someone asks me about my faith and I go, and my the content of my response is basically, well, uh, I, I like my church. We got donuts. We're doing a blood drive, and uh, you know, uh, you ought to come. And then you go home and you wake up in the middle of the night and you say, "This person literally asked me to tell about Jesus, and what did I do? I sold them a donut <laughs> for a dollar twenty-five for the youth." And you say, "I am what? I messed this whole." And you say, "No, no, stop. Who's the one that works through all of this?" The Spirit. Give yourself a stinking break for a second. Right? It's not contingent on your ability to do this. Do you think God is under some kind of preconceived notion that you're awesome? He knows that when you witness, you're probably going to mess something up. He's all right. The Holy Spirit is not going, well, I was going to work through that, but... Uh, you know? I mean, just... 
Go proclaim the word of God. Just go. I don't care who it is. Just go tell them about what God has done in Christ. You're going to mess it up. That's cool. Jesus came for people who messed stuff up. <laughs> right? If we spent, if the church spent less time feeling guilty about how we failed to witness and simply just told everyone we knew about God through the words of Holy Scripture, okay. Let God work through that. Let God be at work in His church proclaiming His word. Just let Him do it. And let's not try to tell Him how to do it or when to do it. Let's just go do it. And if someone comes and joins us, guess what? We'll move over, make room, and rejoice that they come join us because that's the way it works. And we got another person joining us in Christ. And that's a reason to rejoice. Yeah? Matt? Yeah, and then they weren't very good. <laughs> right, just, yeah. I know, church growth. Whenever I get involved in a church growth discussion, I just go, so like Jesus? <laughs> Who lost one out of 12. Right? So so just just take the burden off from you. Just This is what the New Testament just keeps saying. Just go be my witnesses. Just go tell people about what God has done in Christ. Just go do it. Don't worry about if you mess it up or don't mess it up. Just go. God is going to work through his word. God is going to work through his people. God will build his kingdom through you. I promise. That's it. Okay? But it's always about God in Christ loving this world. Any other quick questions before we go? Oh, yeah. That's why I knew there was a hand back there. Uh, how do you know... How do you know the difference between when the Holy Spirit is working with you and it's you? Oh, you don't. You, you have no clue. You, huh? you have no clue. Just assume the Holy Spirit is working in you. Just go do it. And if you mess up, just say, I messed up. Say, God, take... This is what I pray. At the end of my teaching, at the end of my... When I'm talking to someone about Christ, whatever, I simply pray the same prayer. God, I know I'm a goober. I know I said weird things and I mumbled and stumbled and, and miss said this, but I also know that you've promised to work through your word and that your kingdom is, is your desire. And whatever I did or said, fix it. Fix it so that that person heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? And the next time I run into somebody, let me speak your word. Just, just let me speak your word to them. And when I mess up, I'll pray the same prayer again. God, I probably messed that up somehow. But just by your grace, make them have heard what you wanted them to hear. Right? And then if I have another opportunity to talk to them, let me speak your word again to them. A lot of times I'll pray for certain people and pray that God puts someone else to talk to them. <laughs> Could you send someone else to them? <laughs> But does that make sense? I, don't worry about it. Don't waste one second worrying about whether the Holy Spirit is working or whether it's me. Just, just witness to Christ, proclaim the Word of God, and trust that God is at work in all of this. It's His kingdom. None of us are here because the person who brought us here was perfect. We're all here because the Holy Spirit is at work, dragging us 
to his word, to his sacraments, to the church. Okay? Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, your Son, our Savior, Jesus, came and lived his life according to your will. Teach us so to live. And when we fall, drag us to the cross of Christ. That in repentance, we might receive forgiveness and be lifted up to go forth once again, living according to your good and gracious will for us, that all might see the glory of God and rejoice in the face of Christ. In Jesus' name. Thank you all.